Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Liz Moeller, CEO and co-founder of Deep Isolation, a nuclear waste disposal solution that's raised over $22 million in funding. Liz, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, really happy to be here, Brad. Thank you. No problem. So let's begin with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, I grew up in Berkeley, California. So um, as a kid growing up here, you know, I didn't realize that Berkeley was as strange as I now recognize that it is. We sort of laughingly called it berserkly, but um, had a real bent towards the environment, had a real bent towards doing things that are good for the world. That's that's sort of part of my DNA. And at the same time, I also grew up with a professor of physics and a businesswoman so as my parents. So I got the Berkeley, but I also got the more mainstream type of perspective. And this came to a clash um, many times in my life, particularly with regards to nuclear power. And a few questions that we like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder and CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? So the founders that I really admire the most are the ones that haven't yet succeeded. I think once a founder has succeeded, it's so much easier to do a second business, to do a third business, to do a fourth one. Everyone wants to help you out and to make you successful. So the ones that I admire are those that haven't gotten there yet and that are still in the muck and fighting that daily grind and don't even know if they're going to be successful one day. Love that. And what about books? I know this is audio only, but in the pre-interview, we had video and I saw you have a, a massive collection of books back there. So how we like to frame this question, we stole this from Ryan Holiday, but uh, he calls it a quake book. So he defined a quake book as a book that like rocks you to your core and really influences how you think about the world. Do any books like that come to mind? There's one that I've just finished that rocked me to my core and is influencing how I'm thinking about things today. So this may not be my lifetime favorite book, but it's really resonating right now. And it's called The Messy Middle by Scott Belsky. And what I like about it is it talks about how difficult it is to get through that middle period of growing a company. At the beginning, the early stages, it's all excitement and energy and everything's just amazing. And you have this, you know, this powerful vision. And then you get to the middle and it just gets complicated and you try something and it doesn't quite work. And then you try something else and maybe it does work or maybe it doesn't. And so I love the idea of this sort of messy middle as being a phase that that all companies go through. I follow him, but I didn't realize that he had a book. Thanks for the, uh, the tip. I'll yeah. have to check that out. That sounds super interesting. He's a fascinating entrepreneur and fascinating leader. Now, let's dive deeper into deep isolation. So I know I introduced it as a nuclear waste disposal solution. That's a mouthful for me to say. And we haven't had a lot of companies that I would say are anywhere close to this world that you're in. So let's just start with that at a very, very high level. What do you do? 
So nuclear waste disposal is something that has been an unsolved problem, at least for high-level nuclear waste or spent nuclear fuel. So as of today, nobody in the world has ever successfully disposed of spent nuclear fuel or high-level waste. Now, there are some places where they're making active progress, in particular in Finland and in Sweden, but this is still an unsolved problem. And I believe we must have nuclear power if we're going to address climate change and this unsolved nuclear waste problem is preventing that from happening. It is the number one reason that people oppose nuclear power. And deep isolation is looking to make the nuclear waste problem much easier to solve and hopefully be the first to actually get waste into, into disposal. And can you talk to us about nuclear in general? What are some of the misconceptions that people have about nuclear energy? So, Nuclear energy, as it is used today, is extremely safe. And I think that message is pretty well shared, certainly among the younger generations. There's certainly among my parents' generation, people who grew up in the fear of nuclear bombs and nuclear war and tend to conflate nuclear bombs with nuclear energy. Of course, they're not the same. They're very different. And the peaceful use of nuclear energy is remarkably safe. In fact, much safer than many other sources of energy, such as coal or natural gas even. So nuclear is very safe, but it does have uh, waste. And the waste is potentially dangerous. Again, it's not actually dangerous in the way that it is handled today. But it does need safe handling and it does need a disposal solution. And that's something that's the issue that still hasn't been solved. And I was just reading the headlines. So I don't remember the exact details, but what happened in France? Didn't they have nuclear reactors and then they shut them down and then now they're trying to turn them back on? Something along those lines. Do you know what I'm talking about? So in France, they've had nuclear power for a really long time, and they're continuing to use nuclear power and sort of leaning in and doubling down on nuclear power. So they didn't really turn them off. There was some maintenance that needed to happen. So they did turn some of the plants off temporarily while they were doing those maintenance, and they are turning that on. Those are coming back online now. So that might have been what you're referring to. No, oh, maybe it was Germany. Maybe France was the example of the ones that were very progressive. I thought there was some country in Europe that had, over the last 10 years, completely shut down their energy. And then when the war with Ukraine and Russia happened, they were in a bind. But I could be... That's, that's Germany. So, oh, so that is Germany. Germany has uh, shut down all of the nuclear power plants, but they're not planning on bringing them back, at least as of today. So, you know, some of us that hope that might that might change at some point. But as of today, no, they're, they've shut them all off. Mm. And does that really just boil down to, for lack of better description, like a marketing problem? Like, is that a nuclear marketing problem? So I think it is fundamentally a nuclear marketing problem, but I don't think it's a marketing problem that can be addressed just through marketing. So this is what the nuclear industry has been aiming to do for the past 30, 40 years. They explain why nuclear waste isn't a big deal, why it's very safe. The amount of waste that nuclear power plants generate is so small that nobody should really consider this as a reason for not having more nuclear power. Those arguments are true. It is very safe. The amount of waste generated is very small. And yet it doesn't really answer the concerns over people who say, well, OK, it may be safe now, but what are we going to do for the next generation? Is it really responsible for me to leave the solving of the disposal issue for my children? I don't want to do that. And so I think in order to solve this, we do need the marketing, but we also just need that waste disposal solution. 
And you mentioned countries like Finland and Sweden there that were you know forward looking when it comes to waste, I believe. What are they getting right? How come they're so much further ahead? So they have a lot of trust in government and the approach to nuclear waste disposal that everyone around the world had been taking prior to to boreholes and prior to deep isolation was this idea of a mined repository. So this is um, a big underground mine where you can have trucks and people sort of bringing the waste into the mine. And then you leave it there and eventually you seal it up and you you close it. The challenges with that is that nobody wants it in their backyard, right? So where are you going to put this mine repository? Um, how are you going to get the waste to the mine repository? And then the cost of it is such that really you can only have at most one or maybe if you're a big country, two per country. The Finns and the Swedes have been successful at this because, first of all, there's a lot of trust in government. They have great engagement with their stakeholders and their local communities. And they've been able to afford the expensive cost of building these repositories. Wow. Super interesting. And when it comes to your customers then, and I hope this isn't a dumb question, but it could be, is it always countries and and governments? There's no private organizations that have nuclear waste, do they? That's correct. So there are private organizations that have responsibility for the waste on the temporary storage level. So maybe they're the ones who generated the waste. Maybe they're storing it for 10, 20 years until eventually it will need to be taken over by the government for ultimate disposal. And that's because the waste is potentially dangerous for hundreds, thousands, even millions of years. And no private entity can guarantee anything for hundreds to thousands to to millions of years. Whether governments can either is, is a relevant question, too. But it is the responsibility of governments to take ownership of the waste and deal with the waste disposal question. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what's that been like selling to governments? Because this is you know not a little e-commerce widget that goes on a website or a, a cybersecurity you know software that a company could just install this is serious stuff and you know I think all startups struggle with trust and credibility in the early days so what's that been like selling to governments and what have you done to build that trust and credibility and earn that trust and credibility with them yeah selling to governments is hard it's especially hard when you're looking at sort of a billion dollar disposal facility, right? So this is not a decision that any government is going to go into lightly. It's a careful process that, you know, takes years really for any decision to to be made. Some of the steps that we've taken when we started out as a company, you know, you can imagine a startup company in this space where we're trying to sell a billion dollar solution um, to a government is a really challenging one. But where we had our first early success was in doing something, doing multiple things that the industry had thought was impossible. And the first one that we did was a demonstration of our technology in 2019. And this was important because the Department of Energy in the United States had attempted to do a demonstration of boreholes for disposal of nuclear waste, not identical to ours, but somewhat similar to ours, in the few years prior to the funding to the creation of deep isolation. 
And it had failed multiple times because of public protests and um, you know, people not wanting this in their backyard, people saying, you not, we don't trust you to do a demonstration of this here. We think if you're going to do a demonstration, you might actually want to bring in the waste next. We don't want this. And so word on the street was nobody could ever do a demonstration of nuclear waste disposal in the United States, certainly not with community support. And so when we did it in 2019, that was our first miracle, if you will, even though it was small scale, even though it was not we had somewhat limited scope in what we were hoping to achieve with this demonstration. It was still a big milestone for the industry. And that led to partnerships with very established, significant companies. And then when we were working with governments, it wasn't just, you know, Crazy Liz and startup company Deep Isolation going in to talk to the governments. It was Crazy Liz and her startup team that included some very big name companies who are now going out to uh, meet with governments around this solution that has been accepted by the industry. And that led to our first customer contracts and has led to sort of a fast building, trust building relationship with with governments around the world. And I saw the section on your website dedicated to community and community partnerships. What's the incentive for the community to, to be part of this? So I think the first, the number one incentive is it does make the waste safer for the long term. So the waste where it is right now is safe. So I'm not saying that it isn't, but it's safe for 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, and it will require maintenance. The location where it is cannot be used for anything else. It can't be green fielded. And eventually it's going to need to go to disposal. So it's it's a temporary solution that doesn't really allow the community to, to take back the ownership of, of the land. Deep isolation, in, in contrast, can get rid of that waste, can get it off the ground, can get it deep underground where it's completely isolated, and then you can greenfield the site where, where the waste was. So that's a real advantage. There's a safety advantage and there's a you know, land use advantage for getting it off the ground. Now, there are other advantages that can come with that, too, particularly around the first communities. I think if they want economic, you know, want some jobs, want to be a, a demonstration center, a center for uh, nuclear waste expertise and disposal, there's a lot more that can go with that. But fundamentally, it's a question of improving the safety and improving the lives of the people who live in that community. And are there any critics to the approach that you take to disposing of the waste? Um, there are always critics. I think the biggest criticisms that we get is that this is just going to be too difficult, that you know, we have a modular solution. We're looking at micro repositories. They don't have to be very, very big. Um, they don't have to be centralized. There are critics who say that the idea of having a micro repository, just as some critics of micro reactors have similar say similar things, it's too hard to get it licensed when you're not going to have you know, a very, very large volume of waste. I don't think we really get much in the way of critics when it comes to the safety record. I think it's pretty convincing that you know, if a mind repository is safe enough, we're going three to five times deeper and taking the people out of, of underground. So um, we don't really get much in the way of criticism of, of the safety profile. And as we've talked through what's, you know, what I've really thought of is this is such a massive problem to solve. Have you always been attracted to solving big problems? Like when you were younger, were you always kind of looking for big problems like this? Or what was it about this problem that made you say, yep, 
I'll go and try to tackle this massive, massive problem that is going to be around for many, many years. Yeah, I, I kind of hate to admit it, but um, I am attracted to these big problems. And I think part of it is if it's a small problem, somebody else can do it. But if it's a big problem and nobody else is is trying to tackle it, I mean, obviously, only if if you have a vision for how to get it done. But if you do have a vision for getting it done and nobody else is doing it, well, that's where you have the chance to really change the world. Did you have any you know, family or colleagues or friends say that, like, Liz, can you just do a solar farm or do something that's a bit more simple? Have you ever had any people close to you kind of push back on this? Sort of laughingly, yes, all the time. You know, why would your first startup company tackle nuclear waste disposal? You know, why wouldn't you start with something a little bit easier? And I admit, you know, part of me agrees with that, too. Maybe I should have started with something a little bit easier. (laughs) Well, I'm happy that you're doing it. I think the world will be happy. And it's, yeah, it's awesome to see you tackling such big problems. And it's obviously really important for founders to do that. So great to have you there. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your marketing as well. So I see you have a podcast. Can you talk to us about the podcast? Yeah, we touched on this earlier. Education is one of the important pillars for moving forward with more nuclear power and um, addressing climate change. And while I mentioned that people are, are increasingly accepting of the nuclear safety profile, which is very, very, very safe for nuclear power, The understanding that there are nuclear waste disposal solutions that can be implemented effectively and efficiently and it doesn't take 30 to 50 years is not something that most people know. And so the podcast is really an opportunity for us to bring in voices from all around the nuclear waste community and to get their perspective on nuclear waste, nuclear waste disposal. How long does it really need to take? What are the challenges? And you know, also, what do they think of the deep isolation solution? So it's been a really fascinating series of conversations. I would absolutely encourage anyone to, to take a look. And what about for funding? So I know we mentioned there that there's 22 million that's been disclosed so far. What have you learned about fundraising throughout your journey so far? So I think it's really important to enjoy the fundraising process because it takes so much time and there's so many ups and downs. And, you know, if you don't like it as a CEO, that's a big part of your job. So I think the, you know, from my perspective, you've just got to appreciate the quality of the conversations that you have. And I love it when people raise hard questions and it gives you an opportunity to think and to see if you really have all the answers that that you think you do. So I would encourage anyone who's considering fundraising to try and find, figure out what part of fundraising they can really enjoy and sort of lean into that and make it something that they can really love to do. And if you were just starting the company again today, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? You know, I think that the company changes so much from one month to another and from one year to another. I think maybe a piece of advice would be don't think you know where you're going to be in 12 months time, 24 months time, 36 months time. You can always plan for it. You need to have a plan. You need to have a vision. But how you get there is going to change. And so you want to build in the agility and the the flexibility to continue to take advantage of, of new things as the world changes. And final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the vision for the company? 
So where we are right now, we are working on demonstrations. So we already have initial contracts with governments. We've gone in, we've looked at their waste inventory, we've looked at how we could dispose of it and the cost benefit of doing that. Now we need to go out and and demonstrate how we would dispose of that particular inventory in that particular location. From that, we get to the actual disposal. So I think in three to five years, we would like to have a first disposal opportunity, concrete one, real location, where we can begin putting waste into the deep underground. Amazing. I love it. All right, Liz, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founder listening in wants to follow along with your journey as you tackle this massive problem, where should they go? So they can always find me on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Muller. They can also reach out, email Liz at deepisolation.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about what you're building and to share some of the lessons that you've learned along the way. I really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate you taking the time. Likewise, Brett. This has been fun. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.